podcast. Thank you for joining us tonight. We are excited uh, to, to get into uh, social emotional learning tonight. I think it's going to be a great conversation. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist. I am working in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to my friend Rebecca, who's going to tell everybody how to participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello, everybody. Welcome. We are so glad you're here with us this evening. We are going to have an interesting, awesome conversation that I can't wait for. But before I get into that, I would like to share with you, if you are watching us live on YouTube, just sign into your YouTube account and you can comment right alongside the video in the live chat. We will be looking for notifications and share your questions with our amazing guests. And also, if you're watching later in time and not live, feel free to comment also because we do see those comments in uh, later in the week and we're always able to, um, we're usually able to <laughs> reply and continue the conversation on YouTube over time. The other ways that you can share in the discussion are to message us on either of the Facebook pages, School Psyched, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psyched Podcast page, or on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. And our handle on Twitter is at Podcast Psyched. And now I'll hand it off to Eric, who's going to introduce our guest. Hi, Eric. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Um, I am so excited to have Dr. Kimberly Schonert Rakel here with us tonight. All, all of us are excited. I'll speak for the group. Um, and I uh, just want to tell a little bit about her, but we're excited to have a talk that I think is uh, just super important to school psychologists, educators everywhere, uh, anyone in the field or related fields, um, because social and emotional learning is certainly paramount to all that we do, um, it has impact on uh, educational outcomes, and is certainly impacted and affected by all that's been going on in the, the uh, world with the pandemic. So uh, I think this is an important discussion. And we certainly have a wonderful expert with us. So I want to tell a little bit about Dr. Schonert Rakel. She has been a professor at the University of British Columbia for uh, over 30 years and is now at the University of Illinois, Chicago, um, and has been a professor in areas of psychology and social and emotional learning. She has been the director of Human Early Learning Partnership in the School of Population and Public Health uh, at UBC as well. Um, and she began her career as a middle school teacher and was then a teacher of at-risk students and adolescents at an alternative high school. She received her master's from the University of Chicago and her PhD from the University of Iowa. She was a National Institute of Mental Health postdoctoral fellow in clinical research training program in adolescence at the University of Chicago and Northwestern University Medical School in the Department of Psychiatry. She is also a renowned expert in the field of social and emotional learning and research with uh, children and adolescents, particularly in relation to the identification and of the processes and mechanisms that foster positive human qualities, such as empathy, compassion, altruism, and resiliency. Uh, for more than two decades, her research has focused on the social and emotional development of children and adolescents in school and community settings. Her current projects include studies examining the effectiveness of classroom-based universal social and emotional learning programs, programs including MindUp, uh, program, uh, the MindUp program, the Taxi Dog Educational Curriculum, and Random Acts of Kindness program. She's also conducted interdisciplinary research in collaboration with neuroscientists and psychologists examining the relation of executive functions 
and biological processes to children's social and emotional development in school settings. So all these things we throw around, you know, as school psychologists, executive functioning terms and SEL terms. And here we are excited to have our guest who does research in these areas and uh, has worked closely on the board of CASEL and so many other um, associations and with curricula that we've all heard about. So welcome, Dr. Shonert Rakel. We're so happy to have you here. Oh, God, Eric, thank you so much. And you can call me Kim, um, which is fine. And um, it's just so exciting to be here. And I do have to say, you know, um, what is so critical for me is talking to school psychologists. Um, at the University of British Columbia, where I was for 30 years, I was in a department in which there was a school psychology program in addition to it was educational and counseling psychology and special education. And so for the last 30 years, I've had many school psychology students in my classes. I've had had um, really understanding the program because we kind of cry. I was in human development, learning and culture and school psychology really had so many crossovers. So I really know the important role of school psychologists in promoting both the academic and social and emotional well-being and competence of students. So anyway, so I just have uh, I just want to be big shout out to how much I love school psychologists. Thank you. I think you're uh, your work is so important to the, the work that we do. So uh, we appreciate that. And so to start us off, what, what are some things that educators in general and school psychologists in particular um, need to know about social and emotional learning? Uh, well, that's a really long answer. <laughs> I could answer that forever, but I'll just try and be brief. Um, there's a couple of things that I think are really important right now, um, both as the field of social and emotional learning has been evolving and also given the COVID pandemic and the other um, issues that are unfolding across the globe, you know, things like climate change and the war and things like that. We know now that these social emotional competencies are really foundational for students' well-being, but also for learning. You know, and so if I had to say a few things that I just off the top of my head, I, I'd say there's a few things. Number one is we know that how important social and emotional learning and how having those skills to manage the stress are so critical for student success in school. Um, a stressed brain cannot learn. Um, it, when children are under a lot of stress, especially things like toxic stress, they cannot retain information. They cannot, um, in fact, uh, be creative or really learn. So what we now in the current circumstances, we really have to say before we start giving kids all these academic things, we really have to attend to their social and emotional needs to find out how they can manage their emotions, how can, they can feel safe and secure, um, I think are really critical. Um, the second thing uh, that I think is really important to keep in mind is, you know, the first real decade, you know, if I think about social and emotional learning and the history having been there, um, the first part of social and emotional learning, which really was the late 90s and the, you know, the 2000, 2010, really focused on SEL programs. You know, there was that um, there was looking at which programs work for whom, you know, how to have those different programs like Second Step and Ruler and Mind Up and Tribes. There's so many long list of, you know, and Castle actually has a great rating form. But we know now that a program is not enough. 
we know now that it's systemic SEL, where it has to be embedded into the very fabric of the school system, where every, uh, where we tend to things like integrating social and emotional learning into all the academic curriculum, dealing with adult SEL, which I'm going to make as another emphasis, dealing with positive discipline approaches, having a continuous, um, continuous um, uh, improvement, um, but even integrated services, what we know from children across the different tiers from universal to targeted to indicated, we need to address SEL at all those different levels. Um, and so there's more, so when we talk about SEL, we have to think beyond just a program now. It's not a program. It's really about um, what I sort of argue, there's three dimensions. There's actually, Castle has 10 indicators, but I'm going to try and make it simple. These three dimensions, which gets to my last point, the adults. We know now through the science that in order to reach the children, we need to care for the adults. Um, no time like the present now. And, and that idea of we now are seeing educator, um, social and emotional learning, competence, stress. We see the trickle down effect and we know now how important that is. And so uh, to me, SEL, if I'm going to try and reframe people, not just a program, not just for students, SEL has three components. One is, of course, dealing with the students and dealing with things like SEL programs, but also integration student voice and engagement. We need SEL at the community level in terms of the school climate, in terms of all the services, in terms of family um, school partnerships, as well as um, community connections. Um, and then we need to uh, really address educator social and emotional learning. Um, and I'm just going if to, if I'm just going to emphasize one point, I'll tell you about one of my favorite studies, and then we can kind of go from there. So um, several years ago, well, well probably about four years ago, a colleague and I, Ava Oberl, who is at the University of British Columbia, wanted to do a study to look at stress contagion. So just so you know, emotions are contagious. So you know, we've heard that. Well, we know stress is contagious. So it, even if you're not very stressed, but you're around someone who's high, a group of people highly stressed, you will actually kind of catch it and have the negative physiological consequences. So we wanted to look this, at this in a classroom context. So we went to fourth to seventh grade classrooms and we had teachers complete a measure of their own stress and burnout and through surveys. But for students, we wanted to get under their skin. We wanted to look at their stress physiology. So how do you get that? You look at something called cortisol, which is our stress hormone. Um, and cortisol is kind of how tells you about how stressed you are in your body. Cortisol is good for us to have uh, in certain amounts. It peaks about a half an hour after awakening and then declines the rest of the day. But um, if you really have a lot of cortisol and stay kind of high in that kind of alert alert mode, um, it's not healthy. It could actually uh, damage your prefrontal cortex and executive functions. And to get cortisol in this study of fourth to seventh grade students, you get it through saliva. So yes, we went to these 20 classrooms, collected saliva or spit from these fourth to seventh grade students. And they actually, if you know fourth to seventh grade students, they love giving you spit um, in a way that was really <laughs> fun. No, they, they actually loved the study and learning all about why cortisol, what cortisol can tell them. And anyways, they, uh, but what was fascinating were our findings. Those classrooms in which the teachers reported the highest levels of stress and burnout through surveys had students who had the highest levels of cortisol, indicating stress contagion. 
Now, we don't know which way the stress was coming, where the students coming in with high levels of stress and the educators were catching that, or the teachers coming in highly stressed and burnt out and the kids were catching that or some combination. But to me, these findings, and I, and I believe they're the only to date that have really looked at it in this way of looking at the stress physiology through cortisol with kids, it says that if you want to help the students, you have to help the adults. You can't just burden teachers with more and more more to do and say, fix those kids without addressing their own well-being. Yes, it's, it's so interesting. And uh, as you were sharing that, it reminded me a couple of years ago at NASP, I was able to attend a, a Castle Select discussion. Pe- folks from Castle were sharing the Select um, SEL programs and and talking about what that meant to be an evidence-based SEL. And the, I think that was one of the first times that I heard that some of those programs, when they're implemented with fidelity, the biggest changes happen even before there's any change in the classroom. The biggest changes happen when the teachers, when the adults kind of get it. And, and so I'd love to hear, and then I heard that also from Mark Brackett, um, when he shares about the ruler program with the ruler program, there's um, about two years of adult um, professional development before any interventions happen in the classroom. I'd love to hear what you um, are talking about when you say adult SEL and is it, is it that, is it related to, you know, having the, at the sort of the target of the interventions start with the adults? Yeah, I love that. So, so I and I was uh, telling Eric earlier. Mark is a good friend of mine. So, um, so I've known about Ruler for when he was beginning to start it with his uncle Marv, Marvin. Um, so, uh, which I just love that story about how it started. But Mark, you know, Mark and the Ruler program was really ahead of the curve in terms of focusing on the adults. They were talking about it 10, more than 10 years ago when everyone else was just saying, just, you know, get the teacher trained in the program and deliver it. Whereas uh, Mark and that team really focused on saying, we need to do this three-year program. We need to get the administrators first using the language and understanding it. Then we need to get the educators. And then the third year, then you start with the students. So I think that idea um, what happens. And there's actually a really neat study, and Mark might have talked about this, where um, I'm saying it's it's neat because it was one of the first to really show how important teacher buy-in is to a program. So they did a study um, uh, looking at teachers who had been trained in ruler and all had similar amounts of training. But the classrooms in which the teachers really bought into the program where they really understood social and emotional learning and its importance were the ones where the students had the utmost positive outcomes. So I think, number one, the teachers, you know, the, it's it's the social emotional competence. So so first of all, the teachers really need to get it, need to understand that you can, you can teach these. You know, all everyone knows that you, they're malleable. You can ask. You have a child who comes into you, you know, and you say that they have no empathy. They can be taught empathy. We need to believe that instead of believing that you know you're born either you know without it or not. Um, I think that that's really critical. So that that. Uh, training and that buy-in. And that's where I feel it's so important. The other thing is I feel that um, teachers, you know, um, really need to feel their own well-being um, and need to be able to feel less stressed. You know, it shouldn't be another program that's like, now you have to do this and it's a top-down and not understand it. And suddenly they're doing it, you know, maybe in a way that's ineffective that stresses them out more (laughs) or even the kids. 
you know, so how important that is for the teacher to have their own um, well-being. And then finally, I think that, um, and this is something that I think is so critical that I want to see more of, um, is embedding social and emotional learning within educator preparation. I think this is something we began at UBC about 13 years ago, where we started an SEL teacher preparation program, where students um, in these different cohorts actually take their get their teacher certification with an SEL focus. You know, so can you imagine that when you're being trained to be an educator, that SEL just becomes just integrated within everything. So your lens of seeing that is so critical. So I think that that's um, another really important point about how teachers are. And then I could go in and how, you know, what we're finding now that really it isn't just the educator, it's actually the school leader. That's who really is a big lever for getting effective SEL implementation is having a school leader. And that's, you know, then just to loop back to what Mark Brackett was doing and his team with Ruler, really starting with that administrator, knowing that they play such a central role. That's awesome. Um, I wanted to loop back. I had a question about that study that you referenced with the, the cortisol and measuring that. Um, I had never really put any thought into how do you measure cortisol. And so I was a little bit surprised that, you know, it's it's saliva. And that seems maybe less invasive than I guess I had imagined. Maybe I imagined blood work or something along those lines. Is that something that would ever be used as a, a kind of a proactive screener in schools or physicians? Or do, I mean, we do universal screeners to identify children who are at risk. And I'm just wondering if cortisol is, you know, a predictive of, of students that might, you know, be stressed and, and have some of these things going on are we one day going to be you know swabbing students to see like oh well, where do we stand with with the science behind that it's just interesting to me that's great I don't know it at a sort of individual clinical level but certainly I know that it has been used by clinicians to collect cortisol and look at it um, what was really important for our study and I have to say the two ways of looking at cortisol there's one way where we collected cortisol at 9 a.m at noon and at 3 p.m to actually look at students to see if they had that healthy slope that was happening. Um, and then, but there's also something called the tri stress trier test where you actually, um, and I've done research like that, where you take kids cortisol and then you make them do something really stressful, like public speaking or, um, or in fact, uh, doing a backward math or something like that. And then you take it. And what you find is a healthy pattern is how much you're able to bounce back after that stressful experience is a, you know, so, um, so I don't know enough about it used in that way um, for an individual diagnosis, but, um, but I will mention, uh, interestingly enough, and I don't know if anyone else has done it, we've used it to examine the effectiveness of an SEL program called MindUp. So we, did, we collected, uh, if we uh, implemented the MindUp program with um, fourth and fifth grade students, in addition to executive functions as well, um, and we it was a randomized study, so half the students got MindUp, the other half did not, um, and we took their cortisol, their diurnal cortisol, what we called it, nine, your diurnal, to look at that pattern, nine, 12, and three, um, both before and after the MindUp program and the control students, and what was fascinating, really, and it was, think about the study, started in January, ended in June, you know, that second half of the school year. Um, what we found that was, again, really fascinating and, and surprised us was that at pretest, before the kids began, before we got assigned to the condition, um, they ha both had a healthy slope of uh, cortisol with higher in the morning and downward throughout the day. 
at the post-test, when the students took it, the Mind Up kids didn't change at all. They actually just had that same healthy pattern. But what happened in the cold control group was the most of concern. What you saw was that students' cortisol actually became very blunted, meaning there was no, no, um, no none of that healthy pattern. It became very blunted, which is indicative of chronic stress. So um, what it told me that really, I mean, I guess the bottom line, and of course, more research needs to be done, is that unless you do something intentionally to disrupt sort of that second half of the school year where there's increasing stress, and this was fourth and fifth grade, that you can, um, that, that basically an SEL program disrupts this typical pattern of getting more chronically stressed by the end of the school year. So um, I thought that, that was very interesting. And we've been able to replicate that in another study of MindUp as well. That's interesting. I bet if you uh, measured, you know, school psychologists uh, around March when all our evaluations start to really pile up, you would see everybody <laughs> having having uh, <laughs> some issues there. Um, I see that we we have uh, Rebecca. You're on muting, so I want to let you go, or maybe you're reading the question. No, um, I'd love to read the question. We have some good questions in the comments, and I, I also wanted to maybe I'll add mine as well because I was thinking about the leadership, how school administrators are um, important people in this um, big picture, and how um, during the pandemic, I was looking at some um, emotional burnout, emotional exhaustion and burnout um, surveying done in schools that found administration as a group were, was among, were among the highest for scores of um, exhaustion and burnout. So we probably should start with them for many reasons. <laughs> I guess it's not a question. I thought it may, maybe just a comment. But um, Corey, Corey had a great question. She asks, uh, she said, currently there are some issues with certain politicians saying that SEL is indoctrinating students and we should be focused on academics only. What can we say to them? I think that's an important yeah. question. No, I, I was thinking there has to be a question coming up about this because it's really a hot topic. And in fact, the, the new CEO and president of uh, CASA, Leah Samuel, actually addressed this on NBC earlier this week um, that was talking about this debate that's happening. And, um, you know, it's so interesting uh, for me to start thinking about that and looking at the divisiveness um, of of, it's interesting, the divisiveness of, of helping children learn how to manage their stress and get along with others and be empathic and um, being able to be persevere on difficult tasks, which to me are all the things you want our future society, the adults in our future society have. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's a bit confusing, this idea of like... Um, for me, I, I have to say, but, uh, but, you know, my response, I mean, I started off as a teacher, a middle school teacher, and then I worked in alternative high school for students at risk. Um, and then I actually worked in a residential treatment institution and lived there for three and a half years with students with severe emotional and behavioral disorders. Um, this was at university of Chicago. And, um, and what I learned throughout all of this is that students cannot learn their academics until they feel 
um, that they that they have the tools to be able to manage their stress, to get along with others, to be able to be in an environment and a context that that values their voice, that gives them um, helps them be safe and care feel cared for and nurtured. Um, I love that saying that students care don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, but uh, I'll go back to what I really uh, was really something that I have have said. You know, after being in education for I guess forty years now. Um, I was a uh, great fortune to have worked with um, a professor here at University of Chicago named Phil Jackson. And Phil Jackson actually wrote a book called Life in Classrooms in the 1960s and coined the phrase called the hidden curriculum. And basically what he said is that students, the hidden curriculum is how do students, you know, how, how is what they're, um, what they're learning in school that's not explicitly, it's not like math and science, but they're still learning it. Things like learning to get, manage stress, learning to get along with others, how are social relationships? And they just, they're learning it no matter what. They're learning how to, um, how to manage conflict in peaceful ways or not, um, how to um, be able to take another's perspectives. You know, I started off as a language arts teacher. I loved getting my students to think about characters' perspectives and read books and things like that. And all of that is really social and emotional learning. Um, but it was, it's done, it, it, it's been done, you know, for centuries, I guess, in an unintentional um, way that it's, it's happening regardless. And so SEL just helps make it more explicit and intentional. SEL helps kids to have, you know, to start the day by, I mean, just simple things, you know, creating that classroom environment or that school environment where kids feel um, safe and secure, which we know helps them manage and learning. I mean, you always, uh, you know, and, and I think to, to me, that is the idea is that the social and emotional learning is happening. Um, it, either way, kids are learning how to get along and how to manage their stress and why not make it more intentional? Um, and, and, and I think the second thing, and I don't know if this, you know, it's so hard to know what, what will convince people. The second thing is, is what we know from the science is that when you intentionally help kids learn these social and emotional skills like self-awareness, being aware of their strengths and weaknesses, to have optimism, um, to be able to um, identify what, you know, what they're, what they, to persevere on difficult tasks. If you're socially aware, being able to take others' perspectives, relationship skills like managing conflict, making new relationships, um, being able to be um, socially aware and um, and also responsible decision making, you know, making ethical choices in your life, um, that all of those are essential skills for success in school. And show and research really shows that those students who have intentional um, opportunities to learn those skills actually do better academically too. That's the that's the big one. That's the big finding. They do better academically than kids who don't learn those skills. So, um, and then if you think about the future, uh, these skills of getting along, managing stress, working in a team, all skills we need for, uh, employers are looking for, we need them for the future of our society. So I don't know, I could, I could go on, but <laughs> I don't know if that's convincing. I think that's such a great response because it, it's connected to the science and it's connected to outcomes, right? So we can demonstrate this is why. Um, it, it makes total sense, but it's hard sometimes with those political arguments or things, you know, when somebody seems to cut into that stuff. So that's, I think that's a great response and uh, really important for us to remember. 
Well, and I think, you know, for me, I always try and, you know, I've been working so for the last, you know, really around things about empathy and compassion. And I re really try and understand the point of view of those who are there's a fear, you know, and trying to understand what is it? Is it because they don't have enough not back background and, and it's kind of a gut reaction to being fearful of something um, and where that's coming from? But who doesn't want their own children to be successful, to be happy? You know, if you ask parents, what do they wish for their children's future? You know, the number one thing is often I want them to be happy. I want them to have good relationships. And these are the skills that, you know, and not everyone knows how to do that <laughs> just by you know, learning uh, outside that, but, you know, yeah, anyway, I, I think that's a, um, that's a, a couple of good points to make. Those are great points. I am wondering also about how the um, impact of, of the COVID-19 pandemic has kind of exacerbated the need for social emotional learning. And at the same time, um, grown some of the fears around it. How do you think COVID-19 has impacted this connection? Yeah, I think it's um, it's been really interesting to see um, what's happened because you're exactly right, um, Rebecca, about this. It's it's both seeded greater interest in social and emotional learning. Um, I, I now use this great line, I have no idea who who gave it to me, but uh, social emotional learning is not another thing on the, your plate. It is the plate. <laughs> and I think that people are really recognizing that. And I've heard over and over again that school districts that already had a focus on SEL, that their students have done better and not had the same learning loss of districts that weren't as focused on SEL because they already were dealing with these things intentionally and having kids do things like that. Um, so I think that it's it's really heightened the, the need for social and emotional learning um, and just thinking about, you know, students not being able to um, focus and learn if they're highly stressed and all the stress that has come from the isolation. Um, I think uh, the other thing is the divisiveness. I think, you know, again, when we're stressed, we're not able to be empathic, we're fearful. And I think it has led to that sort of increased um, stress among everyone. I think that that's really critical and how important it is to think about um those perspectives of, of COVID. I mean, we see, and to me, it's just heartbreaking and seeing, you know, the, the large increase in depression and anxiety, um, suicides among our youth that we've seen in unprecedented times and, and how we really uh, deal with this. I think another thing I'm very concerned about, you know, besides the students is um the educators and the adults, you know, and Rebecca, you brought up earlier about the leaders. I've seen statistics now about the number of principals who are going to be leaving earlier than expected, who are retiring early or taking something on or taking another profession. The latest uh, study we did in British Columbia, Canada, is we found that um, uh, over 40% of teachers said they planned on leaving the profession earlier than they had anticipated. So there's going to be a huge exodus, I believe. People have told me this year, I don't know if you've heard this, I'm very curious, that this year is even worse than last year. Um, the other thing, and, I, and again, I'm from the school of psychologists, um, and, and maybe I'll turn it on all of you. Um, I've heard over and over again from my educator, the educators with whom I work, and I'm doing a couple of studies now, um, that kids this year are just less mature. The students are coming in um, with less maturity, um, with less 
ability to control their, have their self-regulation, you know, where they're getting into fights, physical fights, where they hadn't seen them before, where they're unable to control themselves. And, And as a developmental psychologist, I'll say that what we know is critical for children during, you know, in the school age years is peer socialization. That part of these SEL skills are learned within getting with your peers. And if you've had isolation and not had those same peer interactions, they're going to be developmentally delayed in those aspects. So we need to have the empathy for the kids and realize that they didn't just have a learning loss. They had a, a socialization loss. Um, and so we need to, to take that into account as well. Anytime, you know, I do an evaluation um, on a child, of course, do a parent interview. And one of the standard kind of questions I ask is just, you know, tell me about their social skills. Tell me about their socialization. Tell me, you know, how that's going. And with the disruption and the social distancing and all that, I I just kind of ask that standard just out of habit. And oftentimes the response I get is, well, we, you know, we haven't been able to socialize, you know, (laughs) in case you didn't, in case you forgot. Um, and, And so parents kind of don't know how their own kids are able to handle that type of interaction because, you know, they've been home and that's, that's huge. And I think that's, you know, uh, yeah, you're right. That schools often talk about that learning loss and forget about the whole socialization piece that students are at at home and not interacting with other students their same age and how different that is from previous years. Yeah. And and I think, um, I mean, so, but I want to be, be optimistic. I'm going to say something now optimistically is, uh, COVID and what it's done to our education system and and the well-being of everyone is an opportunity. It's an inflection point of things that need to be revised and redone and maybe old ways thrown out and new things brought in. So I'm hoping that it isn't going to be just a, back to normal and just going back and stuff that it's now actually heightened some things that we really need to address and, um, and new opportunities. I mean, for me, I have to, and I'd be interested is that I, I never before have seen such a focus on adult social and emotional learning or educator social emotional learning. And and I will say, um, because I've been doing research in this area for about 10 years, (laughs) I've been doing, uh, with other colleagues research on programs to promote teacher well-being. And we, we pretty much had to go knock on many doors to get participants to go through a, a program for teachers' own well-being. Um, and this is about 10 years ago, and it took a lot of work. Now, if I, if I put out one little sign up, you know, I'd have so many teachers. So I think um, that's something I really see a positive change in, that attention to the educator well-being. That's awesome. We had... Dr. Sonia Luther on the podcast a couple of times. And one time she was talking about um, um, creating groups for educators so that they had a space for themselves to connect, to share things that were working um, and just for their own, you know, benefit for their, for their own, uh, having their own support um, and outside of school, because sometimes e- even though you may have great colleagues and connections in a building, it's nice to kind of be able to share more anonymously with people that you you don't work so closely with it. But I wonder about this hurdle, because I guess once the teachers have experienced Um, some of the benefits of the programs or of the support for themselves, they're they're more willing then to, they're more excited about other opportunities. But um, in a school that 
is really still focused on learning loss and maybe, you know, it's still, you know, just kind of getting their sea legs back <laughs> after mm -hmm. the past couple of years. I wonder, how do you address um, the feeling that you're going to ask us to do this now and we're, we're already, you know, it, we're so focused on catching kids up and measurement and, you know, making measuring where kids are so we know where they're going. And, and now you want us to sit through this training on social emotional learning and you're telling it, telling us it's for us. And it's in addition to all these other hours that we're putting in. How do you, how do we overcome some of that and how do we help the system kind of correct itself? That's a, such a great question. It's a million dollar question. I wish I had the, the perfect answer, but I'll just tell you a couple of my experiences with that. I feel that often things that are very top down um, that come at it from a like, okay, now we're all doing this SEL program and you all have to do it and, you know, keep your records and feels very, um, you know, kids don't like it if teachers do that. And, you know, these teachers don't like it. So we have to really approach it with that compassionate lens. And I think um, when I think about things, I think of a school leader who really leans in with this idea, let's see, let's try this new program. Let's have those people who want to try it out first to really learn those early adopters who will kind of see it and then kind of what do, and they could share back what they learned. So I find that sometimes saying we're doing it all school-wide, all of a sudden, is a bit too much for some people and the idea of taking on, and I've actually seen grassroots approach where a couple of teachers take it on and everybody starts looking down the hall at those kids and going, why are your kids so different now? What are you doing there? And they start seeing that. And that then leads like people now coming in and saying, well, oh, that's how it works, you know, and that's kind of thing. So I think that's one. And I know there was a study done, oh, several years ago, Tracy Viancourt, who's a colleague of mine who does lots of stuff on bullying, did a marketing research study to find out what influences educators to take on a new bullying program. And it wasn't the research. It was another teacher telling you, telling them that this was a good thing to try. So I think, you know, on the one hand, I think that that's, um, that's you know, so, so, I think the mandating it, I, and the, on one hand, you want to adopt that SEL systemic one, but, you know, sometimes it can backfire and make people totally take, you know, just say, I'm never doing that again or something. The other thing is, is I think, and it's, it's, it's an interesting pathway. What we found is a pathway to get teachers to do programs for themselves was to first start off with doing things for their students. So I'll, I'll just bring in the example about Mind Up again, because I've been doing research on that program for about 15 years. Um, we did uh, Mind Up, uh, which is a program that integrates mindfulness and social emotional learning and has a real focus, K to um, middle school, real focus on um, things like gratitude and uh, as well as kindness, as you know, all those things. Um, and we tried to get teachers to sign up for a program that was for them, just for them. The teachers only wanted to do things for the kids at first. They're like, oh, I'm here. I'm just here to help the kids. I feel selfish if I take a program for myself. But it was when they implemented the program and they learned more about how it benefited them that then they became more interested in doing a program for themselves. So I think there's different pathways. We have to just think of not one size fits all. And I also feel that, um, I mean, yeah, so I think it's, it's such a great question, Rebecca, because I feel the school leader comes in and says, you know, you do have to have a framework. Um, and I guess what I would say, how hard would it be for to start with sort of a five-year plan and saying, this is this year, we're going to have these different choices. You could try different things the next year. Um, yeah. So I feel like that's, uh, 
that's another thing is to think about, oh, we're going to start with just creating the safe, caring environment of student voice, or we're going to focus even things simple like this. We're going to start each staff meeting with a celebration, or we're going to do, I don't know, you know, there's such little things you can do that can go a long way um, for sure. I'm just looking at uh, one of the comments from us <laughs> that, uh, you know, some uh, uh, administrators have asked staff to, you know, take a little time off or uh, take a mental health day, go off campus and get lunch during a faculty meeting, that sort of thing. And I just like that. <laughs> I really do. Um, I, I think, you know, as we've been talking and, and uh, Kim, as you've mentioned, um, you know, this pandemic has really exposed so much uh, where so many holes are in our foundations. And, uh, and, and as you've already mentioned, you know, we need to do more of this with adults. So um, that's just so crucial. And I'm, I'm just admiring, uh, I think it was Rachel's comment, <laughs> but just admiring uh, that administrators are doing that. And yeah, we're, I think, at a crisis point in education, right, where we're losing people because of the pressure and the stress uh, from administrators to teachers to mental health professionals as well. And we're going to really have to make some hard decisions on how to support educators better, uh, you know, whether it's financial or um, other incentives that are going to really make a, a difference because it's, it's clear that not enough is happening. So uh, I really appreciate this discussion on adult support too. And I think I do want to make this caveat. Um, however, I don't feel that we have to now place a burden on for, for the teachers to just take care of themselves because there's a system that's broken. There's a that there's a larger, you know, larger uh, beliefs and, you know, the pay structure. I mean, there's so many different layers in terms of how much that profession is is supported. So I don't I don't want it to think that there's going to be I think it's important to to do those things to start appreciating and uh, teachers when we when we first published that stress contagion study, we were a bit anxious to find out how the educators were in the field, but the response was overwhelming saying, "Finally, someone sees us." Um and I think that's where we are now, but we just have to make sure that we're not in that that we look that there's larger systemic changes that have to occur for the teaching profession for us to truly, truly value them. And, um, and, and also Eric, I love Jaris. I have to say one of my favorite things about leadership that I've seen during the pandemic, there's a, a school district in, in British Columbia where the principals are all really making sure they have, they have wellness Wednesdays and they do lots of things, but they've allowed teachers to really think about what they can do during the day to take a break. So one of the things that teachers are doing during their planning period is going just a, a walk in nature. You know, this is, mind you, it's a beautiful place in <laughs> British Columbia, but, you know, allowing teachers to say, you don't have to sit in your classroom and do your planning there. You could go walk with a colleague and talk about work, or you could, and also um, what I what I love too is I've seen really amazing professional learning communities where um, you know these are coming together to learn um, on these things as well as um, there's one I'm actually doing right now where teachers are engaging in action research projects every month to go off and take some of that you know latest uh, research on things like self awareness or self regulation and going and trying out new things and coming back and sharing with each other. And making that excitement, I feel that that's another. I, I find, I actually, you know, so I could. That I, I found that that action research and 
being able to integrate that and try things out and come back and share is, is an amazing way to um, engage the conversation about social and emotional learning. I think it's so tricky too. So my district I had put in the chat, you know, allowed everybody, they announced that, you know, we're giving you uh, teachers this day off uh, and we're carving it out and stuff, um, which was a nice gesture, but it was coming at the same time that, you know, teachers were just so unhappy and the union was expressing this discontent with the safety procedures with COVID and teachers were feeling like they were pushed back into the classrooms, you know, sooner. So it came, you know, at a time when teachers, I mean, there were protests going on outside the, the board of ed and there's all this, uh, these bad feelings and teachers are feeling undervalued and disrespected in the paperwork and, and all this stuff. And then the district's like, okay, we'll have, have an extra day off. And so this was a lot of teachers felt like, you know, you're putting this Band-Aid on or you're trying to make yourself look good. You're announcing it to the public that you're giving your teachers a day off and look how amazing. And so, um, you know, it, it's it was just kind of a weird, icky situation because I understood the intention. It also came after couple neighbor districts had done that and then it, it kind of felt like maybe my district is like well I guess we have to do it too so we don't look like the bad guy um, but I, I get this concept of, of teachers saying that you know you know suggesting we go and get a manicure <laughs> isn't solving why we're stressed you know so it, it's not just about going and get a manicure or taking a bubble bath like doing <laughs> having a glass of wine relaxing but it, it's more um you know, systematic. I think that those things can happen in concert for sure. And taking these nice walks and, and doing that is important. But then, um, you know, districts need to also make these bigger changes too, to make sure that their teachers overall, you know, aren't swamped in paperwork and aren't feeling unsafe and, and, and these kind of um, bigger things uh, going on. And I think that's really hard. It's really hard to be a teacher now, <laughs> for sure, an educator, a school psychologist, anybody. I agree wholeheartedly in this idea of this Band-Aid approach and thinking. I mean, it's it's more than was done before, so I guess we could say we're moving forward, but it's not really done in a coordinated manner to figure out how do we need to reorganize schools so that teachers can do the work they are meant to do. And, and also, you know, and I guess the other thing, and this is just something, you know, to be supported. Um, one of the things that's really interesting to me is the reason that many teachers leave the profession. So we know about 50, 30, 30 to 50% of teachers leave within the first uh, five years, but we know that there's more now. Um, but the number one reason often is not being able to deal with classroom management, dealing with difficult students. And when you ask teachers what are the things that really stress them out, besides classroom management, it's not getting the respect of your colleagues and not having access to critical resources, you know, those sort of everyday stresses. So, I mean, so we know from the research kind of what are the things that teachers need, um, but I'm not sure why it's not, it, it is, well, I have to say, it's very fascinating. There's, of, of thinking about education, how much of education is based on tradition that we've had in a hundred plus year old system that's just been the way it is, it ends at three, have off in the summers and all those kinds of things that um, versus real science of what is the best way for what we know from neuroscience, what we know from, you know, I think of uh, Peter Senge's work on the idea of system, um, you know, looking at the system. Um, it's just fascinating to me that how much of that science actually influences the education. Such a good point. You know, uh, 
I'm hearing more and more schools are exploring uh, whether or not just to start later, especially for older children, you know, and we go, oh, right, the science is, is there that suggests that's a better thing to do for our older kids, right? But we're just a little slower in <laughs> catching up to that, so. I've heard them do that. I will have to say, so I have two sons. Um, they're 25 and 22 now, but when Griffin, my oldest, was in high school, he start, their high school started at 8.30, which is much more reasonable than some high schools. But he, he of course, knows I'm a researcher. He goes, Mom, can you help me find the research on the importance of the, ad, the adolescent brain and the times in which how schools should start? And so there was a, a host of research showing that you can you should not be having school start at 7 or 30 or 8 a.m. for adolescents. Your brains aren't, you know, so anyways. So he did do a campaign in his school to try and get a later start time. It wasn't that successful. But um, it did raise that attention um, for sure. Um, one thing I want to I wanted to talk about that I think is something that school psychologists would be concerned about, or is the use of data, <laughs> is the idea of collecting uh, students' um, reports on students' well-being. And I and I guess for me, so over the last um, oh, ten years now, we have a in British Columbia we have a population level measure of students' well-being from students' perspectives called the Middle Years Development Instrument. And every student across BC, fourth to eighth grade, almost yeah, in different districts, completes this measure of their own well-being and of their assets. So when you brought up Sonia Luther, uh, Dr. Luther work, I was like, I love her, all her work on resiliency. It's like informed every all so much of my work. But I think that um, what we've been doing now for 10 years, this year we collected data on 50,000 students across the whole province of British Columbia on their well-being, their happiness, their optimism, their connection to school, their lives inside and outside of school, um, that data has been such a spark for a focus on the well-being because there's something about having those data that then can lead to the conversation to have how are our kids doing. Our kids, not just a study, research study that's done someplace else saying the kids are feeling this and that, but our kids. And I just wonder, I mean, I've seen the transformative power of those data from kids in the community um, where you could bring parents together with the educators, with community members to sort of all focus, what can we do together? And I just wonder if any of you have had experience with any of that or have, um, I know, am I, is it okay if I ask a question? Um, <laughs> so I just wondered, you know, because that's what I've, I've witnessed. And I wonder as school psychologists, if you've seen that power. Yes, I, um, to bring up Dr. Luther again, in her original episode with us, she was sharing the um, school um, resilience surveys that she um, was offering for both students and faculty. And um, the, the data was very powerful. It, she, she was, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, she was offering it for free because just to try to help. And um, she had, you know, um, thousands of participants and she had some really powerful data. And it was an anonymous well-being survey. Um, but you were able to sort by demographics. So schools were really able to, look at the data and see this group of kids, this age, this grade, this, this cohort um, needs our help. They're experiencing higher levels of anxiety or they're not feeling connected to learning or they, they don't have um, a trusted adult in the building. And so even though you might not be able to know exactly who by group you, you 
were able to find out. Um, and my school, for example, created affinity groups for students. And mm -hmm. that was really powerful to have, to just name it, to say, this has been really hard. We want us to, to be able to be together in it. And for you all to know that we care, that grownups care, the adults care, and that we have each other, that we're, we're all feeling, you know, um, different, uncomfortable emotions in this moment, and we don't have to be alone in that. And uh, so it was really powerful stuff. And I, I think that um, surveying that way to, in order to take kind of the temperature of, of your, your student body and your faculty and staff is so powerful. So yeah, I agree. I was just going to mention so one st one question that we ask, and it just might be something good for the for the listeners to think about. It's one question on the survey that's had real resonance: is we just asked students, are there any adults in your school who are important to you, who care about you? And they have to just write in the initials. We don't ask for any name or anything like that. And what we've seen is that when schools get back their data, if they and we we break them into either uh, how many kids say no one. How many kids say one adult and how many say two plus, two or more? And what we found, and this is really from the research on resilience, so all of that we know about that important adult, is what we found is it's transformative because when schools get their data back and say, we have 80% of kids who have no, have no important adult, it 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 galvanizes them. It, it sort of instigates them to say, what can we do? So for example, one district, um, again, in British Columbia, that they found that in their seventh graders, they found that um, like 54% said there were no one at their school who was important to them. And like 30% said two or more. What they did is they got together and they started thinking, what are ways we can connect with our students? So they identified like even just, you know, what kids say is like saying adults saying hi to me in the hallway by my name, making sure that every student is somehow seen. They were able in one year through this very intentional approach really reversed their focus where they had just less than 30% of kids said no one to more than 50% said two or more. So I feel like that these, these pieces of data points, which is fairly easy to get, can really help um, provide a spark to then look at change over time and see if you can actually, your efforts can make a difference. We had a listener just ask if you can repeat that question. <laughs> Oh, yes, of course. Um, what we did was you just asked students, are there any adults at your school who are important to you? But you can change it and say who you feel really care about you. Or um, we use important because it was what we learned from focus groups that kids liked. But you could say something like that, um, I think, is really important. And, and I just, again, I just want to say the idea of having assessment around social and emotional learning is critical. Um, this organization, EDSPE, who connected us together now has a uh, emotion focus where kids do a, you know, a check-in every morning and can tell teachers how they're feeling. And teachers right away can get a whole report for their class and say, I'm not going to start with that math test this morning because I see how all my kids are feeling or um, to really do that. There's just these quick check-ins and the idea of just asking these simple questions um, has been really transformative. And one thing I will share um, just as a last point here is um, one of my doctoral students just completed her dissertation. And one of the papers from her dissertation was asking uh, sixth and seventh grade students what do teachers do to show they care? And then we content analyze them and use this mindfulness and teaching framework of uh, calm, clear, and kind. 
teachers who are who are who show they care by being calm and not yelling they're uh, clear and being able to make sure they uh, provide instructions and kind just really listen to them when they uh, you know see them actually it's all about just seeing them um, I want to sneak in a quick question if we have a couple minutes. Sorry, Rachel, and I'll let you go. Um, do you recommend any survey tools that we should know about, or do you often create your own um, when you're doing this research? Yeah, so I mean, I will certainly, um, I'll talk about a few. I, there's many. I, I'm, uh, assessment is another, I know school psychologists are really interested in assessment. That's kind of my, um, I, I'm a bit passionate. And I even call myself, uh, say I have OMD, obsessive measure disorder, because I just get obsessed with finding the right measure. So, um, you know, right now, uh, as I mentioned, this Edsby, uh, uh, edsby.com has this emotion check-in one, which is a great tool for teachers and everyone to just get kids talking about emotions um, using the words of Dan Siegel. I don't know if you've ever had Dan Siegel on your program, but he, he's done lots of great work. He, he says to name it is to tame it. So that idea of first identifying the emotion is the first step. And so I love that emotion check-in. Um, there's also the work of Apperson, the DESA. I think that's being done across all of New York right now, an SEL tool. I've been working with them a bit on that tool where they get reports back. I think that's really critical um, as well to have those. And, and I think even finding these simple questions, I love that resiliency one, Rebecca, that you talked about that Sonia has been doing, um, this middle years development instrument that we've been doing that's free to use um, as well. That's, I could give certainly the link. Uh, it's a children's, it's a measure of children's well-being and assets inside and outside of school in fourth to eighth grade, um, really in, in, uh, by the science, but really developed to be um informative to um, uh, students. And I feel like, um, I mean, and of course, you know, we don't, what we don't really have yet is a, um, a measure of um, teacher well-being in a way that is easy to use and accessible. So I think that's probably going to be in the work soon. Hope that helped, Rebecca. I have a lot, I have a long list, but those are the ones at the top of my head. We like it. Um, we're going to, you know, I'm looking, looking for the kind of last questions, but I had a thought when you're talking about the check-in, um, I've seen a teacher use, and I'm a big fan of Google Forms, but she just had a computer set up and, you know, it was a procedure that when students entered the class, they went and kind of signed themselves in on the Google Form and there was emojis for how are you feeling type of thing. So she was able to, to just gauge, um, you know, the, how the class was was doing that morning like you were talking about so i thought that was really cool and of course there's a mood meter i should not miss that from rate ruler certainly we have a lot of comments of people just saying thank you and uh noting their takeaways things are going to add to their student interviews and uh the calm clear and kind so a lot of appreciation for your your thoughts today Welcome. It's great to have people joining on a Sunday evening before the busy work week. Um, so I know that this time is precious, um, but this is, I mean, a group of really dedicated people listening in and who will hopefully some of the, the information I was able to provide will be of some use. For sure. Um, and thank you so much for joining us and, and taking your time, um, you know, to, to spend with us here. So um, I think that people are 
you know, excited. And I think this is really helpful. Um, I want to remind people, I think our next podcast is on the first, yes, 5-1, because we'll be off for, you know, Easter holidays and, and things of that nature. Um, I'll be on spring break after next week. I'm excited for that. I hope that everybody else has a, a good spring break. Um, and we'll be back with, um, from, let's see, Mar- uh, Melissa Bray, right? Eric, are you, yeah, did you schedule that one? Yeah, she is uh, the department chair for the school psych department at UConn and is doing uh, some research on mind-body health. So, some of her colleagues uh, and she will will present and uh, join us as well. Should should be a great and a great probably follow up and connection to what we're talking about today. Awesome. All right. Thank you again. And I'll say goodbye to everybody and hope you uh, have a good rest of your week. Good night, everybody. Thank, Thank you, Tim. Thank you. You're so welcome. Much.